are listening to Up To Me Radio, the best in inspirational talk radio. It's up to me. Hello, and welcome back to A Healthier View. This is Beth, along with my colleague, co-host, and good friend, Dr. Clitheroe. Scott, how are you doing this beautiful day? I am fine, Beth. It is so good to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm great. Can I tell you something? What? I am so pumped about today's show. Really? Tell me more. I can't wait to fall in our listeners about our special guest. And so audience, are you ready? In this episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Eric Smith. Dr. Smith is a bariatric surgery medical director for Georgetown Community Hospital and Georgetown Bariatrics and Advanced Surgical Services in Georgetown, Kentucky. Wasn't that a great teaser? Oh, that was fantastic. And I really am so looking forward to this conversation because I think he is a great physician, a great communicator, and I think our guests are our listeners are going to have a lot of um, great insight from our guests. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, you know, and I'm just so impressed with all of Dr. Smith's beautiful work and the incredible empathy and professionalism he shows to his patients. And, you know, some of our listeners might be thinking, hmm, why does that name sound so familiar? If you've seen the Learning Channel's hit show and Thousand Pound Sisters, then you're saying, oh yeah, OMG, that is why. That's why it sounds familiar. Dr. Smith has been featured on TLC's show, Thousand Pound Sisters, for two seasons. And you can just tell that he's truly passionate about helping people in their weight loss journey. Well, I can't wait to get started. What about you? Me too. So Scott, today I really want to drill down and talk more about, you know, yes, obesity with Dr. Smith, but also the mental aspect of weight loss and bariatric surgery, the practical solutions that Dr. Smith gives to his patients, not only for weight loss, but also for spicing up their general health. So without further ado, Dr. Smith, welcome to A Healthier View, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm excited to be a part of what you guys are doing. Well, Dr. Smith, uh, really, again, I, I can't wait for our listeners to get to know you and, and find out more about you. And, and of course, we will put all of your uh, social media presence and other links in our um, landing page. But if you wouldn't mind, you know, kind of just um, not only introduce yourself to our listeners, but kind of tell us how you got inspired to go into bariatric surgery. Yeah, so... Um... You know, I grew up in uh, eastern Kentucky um, in, a, in a small town called Ashland, Kentucky, which is kind of right there on the, the Ohio River where West Virginia, Kentucky, and, and Ohio touch. And um, small blue-collar town. Um, I've got a sister. Uh, she and I were the first ones to go to college, but I'm not going to give you some sob story how we were so downtrodden. You know, we had a great, <laughs> great uh-huh. life, a great, great upbringing. But I knew pretty early um, that I wanted to go into medicine. I think I can remember as young as like in my early teens that I would stay up late and watch shows. I'm not really sure what channel it was on. Um, 
this was before the TLC days and all sorts of stuff, but yeah. I would watch shows about surgeries and was fascinated by it. Um, and kind of knew that I wanted to be involved in medicine, but I wanted to use my hands um, to do so. And, you know, kind of headed off to college, um, knowing that I wanted to go into medicine. Um, I would say I was one of those guys in high school that my, when I would tell everybody I was going to be a doctor, my, my teachers would say, oh, we don't doubt you, you can do it. We're just not <laughs> sure if you're going to buckle down and do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> active in sports and like most teenage boys are. And, um, and then when I got to college, I really focused, actually went to Marshall university as a place kicker, um, wow. and had some I- issues with a knee injury and realized pretty early on that, um, God was probably tapping me on the shoulder and say, your athletic ability is limited, but maybe you could do something better. <laughs> so, Aww. um, I started, um, really was focused on that. Um, and as I started heading into to medical school, I really knew, like I said earlier, that I wanted to do surgery. Very first general surgery rotation. I knew I loved it. I had worked with a guy who was just me and him. I was in a small town and he, he told me, he said, if you think you want to be a surgeon, we're going to, you're going to, you're going to live my life for a month. And, <laughs> you know, he had me there getting up at four o'clock in the morning and rounding on his patients and, and finishing late at night, but I loved it. And I loved the challenge of it. Fast forward through residency and specifically why, um, why I got into bariatrics. I trained in, in Dayton, Ohio, and we were one of the first center of excellence for bariatric surgery. And, mm. You know, this was back when open bariatric surgery was still a large component. And um, probably about halfway through my training um, was when minimally invasive bariatric surgery really started to penetrate the market. Um, we and so what the group that trained me did is they brought in a new fellow of course back then there weren't bariatric fellowships but mm-hmm. there were minimally invasive fellowships that maybe you got you know some emphasis on minimally invasive bariatric surgery still only offering that to a limited number of people and bmis and things like that so they brought in a new fellow grad to join their practice and essentially offer laparoscopic bariatric surgery to the patients that would qualify and to also teach them you know, how to do it and as they progressed. And um, I trained in a program where we were a smaller residency where there was two one year, three the next, and they rotated back and forth. So it just so happened my fourth year, um, the, the, the group in front of me, one of them left a year early to go to a fellowship. And so it left one chief. And I was mm-hmm. asked to be chief resident with him as a fourth year, as well as chief resident as my, in the, uh, one of the chief residents in my fifth year. So my caseload um, and I'm sure you can um, understand this. This was back in the days where there were no work hour restrictions, exactly. <laughs> yes. all that stuff. So <laughs> we were doing a ton of surgery and I really went to this guy that we brought in and I said, Hey, you're going to get a medical student to drive a camera for you for these laparoscopic room my gastric bypasses. Hmm. But I'll come over as a fourth year and I'll skip these surgeries that I know I'm going to get plenty of. Um, and I'll drive the camera for you, but the deal is you got to teach me how to do these because <laughs> I felt like if I can learn how to do a, a laparoscopic gastric bypass on a morbidly obese patient, I could probably develop a skill set to do anything. Anything. Yeah. And in all honesty, it was purely in the very beginning. It was the challenge of surgery and operating on people who were considered um, challenging patients, challenging body habitus, medical histories, and everything. And as soon as I started doing it and he, he kept his end of the bargain, um, I just loved it. Um, and then, but what I started to see 
Um, and I actually helped start a bariatric surgery clinic in our residency clinic that was kind mm. of separate from just the general surgery clinic. And these patients, the impacts that we made on these patients, um, yeah. you know, yeah, it was great to do a colon resection and take someone's tumor out, but there was still a long road ahead of them and treatments. And you really didn't get to see them after that um, yeah. unless you were, you know, part of the oncology team. And for these patients who come in in a matter of months and they're like, man, I, I was able to go play with my kids in the yard or I was able to get to sit in a movie theater seat. I hadn't fit in the movie Aww. theater seat forever. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to use an extender on an airplane. You know, little stories like that. And then big stories of, doc, I'm off my meds for my diabetes and on and on. It just, I, I've said to many people, I have to be honest, it was probably a selfish reason that I was hooked because I loved how I felt helping these people feel that way. Um, and I just feel like I always had um, um, a level of empathy for the struggles that, that obese patients went through, um, what they dealt with. And I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Mm. So that's, that's kind of how it all started. That's great. That is. That's wonderful. And, you know, I know my first question for you, Dr. Smith, is going to be a loaded one. And you could probably talk about this for hours, but I find this intriguing. So when someone decides to get bariatric surgery, what does that process look like? I mean, from the first appointment with you to the follow-up, you know, months and years later, but what does their journey look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And, And I think every program does it a little differently, although most of us who have very Uh, large, well-established programs, we do it somewhat similar. And that is most of us have some type of informational seminar or or educational program that kind of starts the process. Um, A lot of our patients, what they do is they can go online and they can do it 24 hours a day. Um, It's about a probably 35 to 45 minute uh, uh, presentation that talks about not only our facility, the services we offer, and then kind of summarizes the different surgeries that we offer. And we also offer that uh, live too. Now COVID has kind of made us alter that a little bit, but mm-hmm. so patients come, they get this education. It, it doesn't cost them anything. We don't verify any insurance benefits prior to that. They sit down and they just learn. If you look at statistics, probably well over 50% of people who ultimately have bariatric surgery have looked at another program at some point or considered it and then stepped away. Um, and it could have been a variety of reasons why they didn't continue on through. So, you know, just, just exposing them to the information is the first step. And so once they do that, then there's a way that they can log on, send their information to our office. We have one of our insurance coordinators reach out to them and really just kind of verifies their benefits. I think there's a lot of people that assume that you, their insurance won't help them with this and everything's all the you know, carriers are different, states mm-hmm. are different. But for example, in the state of Kentucky, um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid um, provides benefits for this if you qualify, because um, they know it's going to help the patient in the long run and save on the yes. cost of care for those patients. So right off the bat, it lets the patient find out, okay, do I have benefits for this? If I do, now, now what is their criteria? And some insurances may say it's a three-month process. Some may be a six-month process. Some it may not be a time period. And that, that process is usually like just meeting with a family doctor or a dietitian, doing monthly weigh-ins, doing monthly education. Um, a lot of insurances may not say you have to lose X amount of weight. Some may say they want to see a small percentage. 
but really for us, we just want to see, you know, um, kind of grasping that education and putting those tools in place. We get all the workup ordered. A lot of times that may um, require like upper endoscopy to clear their upper GI tract. Uh, many insurances are going to require cardiac clearances, pulmonary clearances, sleep studies, mm-hmm. lab work, all that good stuff. And then one, kind of once they've met that, um, that checklist of things their insurance requires, um, then they come in for um, all their education from us. So the people that are ready for surgery, they'll spend an entire day in our office. They'll go through an hour and a half PowerPoint presentation by me specifically about their surgery with our dietitian, with our bariatric nurse, preparing them for um, the weeks leading up to surgery, the weeks after surgery. Um, and that it's, it's a long process. You know, mm-hmm. our patients, unfortunately, hear that comment that they're quote taking the easy way out, which we'll get into a little later. And, you know, when they go through this process, they're like, there's nothing easy about this. Right. <laughs> now we have lots, lots of people to hold their hand and help them with this um, and guide them through it. But there's a lot of um, work that they put in to get to that point. Yeah. You know, Doc, um, I'd love for you to kind of go through, I mean, and I caught something you said earlier that maybe some of our listeners don't know about open versus laparoscopic, even, and obviously robotic assisted versus not. So kind of that, those types of uh, mechanisms, but also just the different types of bariatric surgery that are, have been available and pretty much what y'all are using now. Yeah. So approach wise, we'll, we'll say open versus minimally invasive. Um, Open is going to be the old school, big incision. Um, and we don't, there's really nobody that should go to a program that say that that's how they perform it. You know, there's always those small percentages, although they're getting almost non-existent, but those small percentages, someone may have to be converted to an open, but you know, when we were doing open bariatric surgery in, in obviously the morbidly obese population, um, even the, in the best hands and good outcomes from a surgical standpoint, those patients carried a greater than 50% risk of wound infections and uh, mm. close to 60% risk of incisional hernias just because of their weight. So when we went from that approach to making small incisions, you immediately dropped those two things down to well less than 1%. But obviously we had, that, these are challenging surgeries on patients who are, uh, um, have large body habits. So doing them through small incisions is very challenging. And so we had to make sure we could emulate adequate outcomes. You know, not only can we keep the, some of the complications at bay and equal to what we were doing before, but then we had to say, how do we make them better? Robotic right. surgery has really just taken our minimally invasive principles and man, just run with it. So now I can do these surgeries through these small little incisions, but I can see inside of a patient and in 3D. Now that may say, oh, that's really cool. Other than a 3D movie. But well, I think what people <laughs> lose sight of is we see the world in, in depth perception and in mm-hmm. three dimensions. You know, if, um, if there's something in front of us, the accuracy of us grabbing a cup of coffee um, in front of us is, is impacted by seeing the world in, in 3D, in depth perception. And if we saw that cup of coffee in a 2D image, we would miss it many times. Hmm. So I'm operating inside of a patient in the same accurate depth perception that I see the real world, but I'm seeing it in high definition and 10 times more magnified than I would wow. see it with my own eyes. <laughs> but then I'm operating with instruments that are a completely stable platform. 
So what that means is, is the force of a trimmer is not strong enough to move the tips of a robotic instrument. So, you know, I have to know where to put that instrument. This, these procedures are 100% surgeon led, but when I'm really close to the spleen and up by the short gastrics near the diaphragm, my hand is going to be 100% steady every single time, Mm. which makes a huge difference on blood loss, on handling tissue and especially friable tissues. And then we also have instruments that are completely wristed. So when I rotate my wrist in any direction, my instruments emulate that motion just like I could with my hands, but I'm not having to open the patient up to get my hands in there. And I'm working with instruments that are, you know, millimeters in size. So my exposure, my visualization is so much better. So, you know, I remember the days when I trained, you know, I came out in 2006 where if there was a tough laparoscopic case, some of my older trainers would say, man, I can't see very well. We're going to have to open. (laughs) And now we would never say that. I would never say I can't can't see well. And if I couldn't, that I would have to open because I would never be able to expose and visualize as well open as I can, can robotically. So that is um, us being able to, to do these surgeries doing them efficiently, doing them quickly, getting patients off the table um, on patients who have these other comorbidities has been a, a big game changer. As, as far as the types of surgeries, probably the easiest way to explain it to your audience is just to say, you know, when we do bariatric surgery, I like to say we kind of break it into two groups. Um, we have, um, and it really, I would say three, we have restrictive procedures where we do something to make a patient feel full quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and we restrict how much food they can take in. Then we have malabsorptive procedures where we do something that causes them to not absorb everything that they eat. Mm-hmm. So therefore they don't absorb all the calories they, they eat. And then we have the third group, it would be a combination of those two mm-hmm. where we have some restriction and malabsorption. So um, the surgeries that we do in my practice are vertical sleeve gastrectomy. These are all done robotically, room wide gastric bypass. And we do something called a SADI. Um, which is really just a modification, a newer modification of the old duodenal switch that we've offered. Mm-hmm. Um, a sleeve would be a restrictive procedure where we kind of take the stomach, which is normally like a water balloon, and it fills up 10, 15 times the size before it, uh, as it stretches and descends and turn it into a, a water bottle where it, when it's full, it's full, and it doesn't expand or stretch. So they eat less food. A room wide gastric bypass or a duodenal switch or a Sadie would be something where we give them a tool that makes them feel full quicker, but we also bypass a portion of their small intestine. So what they do take in, they don't absorb everything that they mm-hmm. take in. Yeah. Is there a, is there a, a, an idea when you're talking to patients about the success rate of, of one versus the other, or is that not how you like to, to, to word it or to present it, you know, or, you know, how do you think about it from that standpoint, just whatever's best for that patient is what you recommend, or are there some that are better than others, if that's the right way to ask it? Yeah, you know, I think I'm I'm a firm believer that um, that we don't have one tool that fixes all problems, (laughs) Um, you know, and and what in in your medicine that you practice, you 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 can understand that completely. So, um, I think to do to tackle um, obesity from a surgical standpoint, you have to have multiple options or angles. And there might be some surgeons who may only feel comfortable doing one or maybe two procedures. 
And I, by no means am I being critical of that, mm-hmm. but as long as they have other resources that they can reach out to, if they run into a patient who maybe needs something maybe beyond their, their, their experience or what they feel comfortable doing. But, you know, a lot of it has to do with how much weight the patient wants to lose, what mm-hmm. their, what their goals are, what their gotcha. BMI is, what their comorbidities are. Are they a diabetic? Or are they not a diabetic? Well, you know, it's tough when you say success because, you know, well, what is success? Is exactly. Success yeah. That you lose a hundred pounds. That sounds pretty successful, but Hey, if somebody's 400 pounds and they lose a hundred pounds, I've not gotten them out of that category of obesity where mm-hmm. I've really made an impact on the length that they can spend here on this earth and yeah. getting yeah. rid of those comorbidities, which is directly correlated to that. So, you know, what we, I think to realistic expectations, what I tell patients is when they ask about a specific procedure, I try to give them an, a, an expected excess weight loss. So for example, I always say, we're not going to talk about pounds because everybody mm. has a different number of pounds they need to lose. But if I have, let's say a five, two female, who weighs, let's say, let's make the math easy because <laughs> us surgeons aren't good at math. That's why the people in the room <laughs> count stuff for us, I would say. <laughs> but, you know, if I have a 5'2 female that weighs, let's say, 330 pounds, and if we look at an ideal body weight, um, and let's make it easy and say her ideal body weight should be 130, so she's probably 5'4. Um, she's 200 pounds in excess weight, right? So I can expect her with something like a sleeve at two years to lose about 70, maybe up to 75% of her excess body weight. So Mm -hmm. of that 200 extra pounds, she's going to lose about 70 to 75% of that. If she has a Sadie or a bypass, I should say, she might lose 75%. She has a Sadie. She could probably get as close to 85% of that excess weight. Okay. But like anything in life and in medicine, there's a trade-off, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think in the midst of this pandemic, we've all had those conversations, the risk benefit, because that's really how the world works. Yep. Right. Um, so maybe the surgeries that you lose a little bit more weight, you have to be a little bit more diligent about watching some of your, um, your vitamin levels and your labs, be more diligent with your supplementation. And maybe you have some, 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 uh, side effects of, uh, GI intolerances and stuff. If you don't stick really close to the diet that you would, maybe some of the other surgeries where you lose a little bit less, but you can get away with a little bit more. So we really try to look yeah. at patients and we try to steer them away from saying, my neighbor had procedure <laughs> X and she looks great and feels great. So I want procedure X just because I like that result. And yeah. my answer to that is, well, I've got a buddy who looks great, feels great, and he's a crossfitter, but yeah. that ain't going to work for me to get those results because I hate crossfit. But here's yeah. the things that I like to do, and I can still end up where he is. I'm just going to take a different path to get there. Yeah. 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 That's, That's good. Right. And, you know, Dr. Smith, the three of us spoke the other day. So, you know, that I'm a health and wellness professional. And over the years, I've seen so many people who struggle with their weight. And, and by the way, this is actually interesting tidbit of information. And, and Dr. Clitheroe and I've actually said that by definition, all of the patients we've worked with, all the clients we work with, they are professional dieters. And I truly mean that they all know the ins <laughs> yeah. and outs of almost every single diet program out there 
there. Yet so many of those diet programs have resulted in failure for my clients. And so I get to hear their stories over and over again. And I say over and over again, it isn't a diet. It's truly a lifestyle change. So, you know, of course I want to be sensitive as I have obese family members and I have dear friends that are overweight. So I know there are different stories for every patient and I know there is a lot that goes into weight loss and someone struggle with obesity. But when it comes to willpower, um, Dr. Smith, in your research and in your history of working with the obese population, do you think that someone who's obese has low willpower or self-control when it comes to something like food or not exercising? And do you think this willpower um, is a genetic mechanism or more of a mental mechanism? And I mean, what's your opinion? What's going on? there? That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about something, how, you know, the lay person is going to break it down into willpower, willpower, I always say as humans, we're motivated by results. Mm -hmm. You know, when I can see a tangible change of that's, uh, that's approaching a goal that I want, it makes those things I'm doing to cause that change that I may not enjoy worth it. Right. Yeah. You know, if I, if somebody said, you know, if I'm like, well, I, I want that six pack that that guy has, mm-hmm. but it means I have to do. And, and I hope your listeners know, I'm not saying that this is how you get it, but you know, <laughs> if somebody said, if you do this machine or you do this two hours a day and every minute I'm on there, I'm like, I don't like this. This isn't enjoyable. I'm looking at my watch constantly. But if I happen to every time I do it one time, I look in the mirror and I think, oh, I'm starting to see a little bit of it. There's a better chance I'm going to jump on the next day and do it again because that's what motivates me. That's what pushes me that my work is coming to fruition. I think what happens in, in patients who are battling with obesity is, as you know, better than anybody in what you do, Rome wasn't built in a day. They did not get to that point overnight, and it will not be overnight to see those results. Yeah. So if you take somebody, you know, we, we put all of our patients through body composition workup. So we use an in-body scale, which is a ton of different brands out there in our office. And so, you know, I'm not so much, yeah, people want to lose pounds. But I can make anybody lose weight. But if I just tank their muscle mass, they're not going to be healthier. They're not going to like how they look. Right. And I've made paper look good, but I've actually set them up to, to gain weight easier. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, it's all about percentages of muscle mass to fat mass. Right. So what happens in these obese patients when I put them on the body composition scale for the first time and, you know, people will find, see a person on a TV show or something like that and think, man, that patient must eat 10,000 calories a day. So I could use, and I can, and he's given me permission to do this. I could use somebody who I've worked with, who, when he first got on that scale weighing almost 440 pounds, his total number of calories that that gets calculated, that it takes to keep him at his current weight and current body composition was 150 calories different than mine. And I'm five foot nine and about 180 pounds. Mm -hmm. So how is that possible? Meaning he can make a massive sacrifice compared to how he's been eating and not see a change right away. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. I think it, it is that motivation by results that 
there is that lag time. So if somebody says, I'm not eating fast food, I'm not going to drink regular pop, I'm going to try to eat healthier, and I'm going to do it for two weeks. And let's be honest, they may not like it, and they do it for two weeks, and they get on the scale because no one's continued to educate them about how many calories they should take in and where those calories should come from. And they're like, forget this. And then, as you know, then they rebound and they go way back the other direction. And now they end up 10% 10 heavier than they were if they lost a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I get that. And, And I know Scott, you're a runner, but what's the one thing I always tell you to do, Scott? Stretch and uh, lift weights. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> definitely lift weights. I, I said it backwards, but yeah, definitely uh, more resistance training for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. yeah. You know, we're seeing some good, we're seeing some good data in patients now, and I'm hoping we're going to continue to shift this in our profession where these patients that lose weight and let's say, even if they gain a little bit back, but they're down, you know, well over a hundred pounds from their highest weight. And we, years later, we see their diabetes creep back. We're seeing direct correlation with their their percentage of muscle mass in relation to that. And there's people that are way smarter than me that are scientists that can explain it better than me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is, I I stress that. And, you know, even especially the women that we operate on, I'm like, listen, ladies, you're not going to get big and bulky. You don't make testosterone. Ask us men how hard it is to get big and bulky. But just maintaining your muscle mass, not losing any and losing body fat mass starts to shift that ratio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said the reward is, is your number, you know, your magic number of calories it takes starts to go up. You may find that you lose 70 pounds and you can eat as many calories as you could when you were 70 pounds heavier because we've switched your body composition. Exactly. And my favorite, my favorite type of um, workout is HIT. I'm really obsessed with HIT training. But um, you know, I want to bring up the show One Thousand Pound Sisters now, which, by the way, I okay. truly enjoy watching. Mm-hmm. Um, one minute I'm laughing, the next minute my heart goes out to Tammy and Amy and Chris for their daily struggles. And there are times I'm actually talking to the TV, saying, "No, <laughs> Tammy, don't do that. Those are not good choices." But um, Dr. Smith, how yeah. did you get involved in the show and how has your time been on the show have you been enjoying it yeah so it's it's kind of interesting i would say i can't remember how many years ago this was but um they reached out to me um i had been reached out to a production company that was working with the discovery network many 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 years ago um and did some interviews with me and, and wanted to know if i wanted to be involved and just for some reasons i just i didn't feel like the direction they were going with the show was was right for me or my patient. And then I got a, somebody called the office and said, my, one of my office girls said, Hey, somebody from um, discovery network wants to speak to you. And I'm like, okay. And I threw it on my desk. And maybe a week later, my, one of my managers said, did you ever call that person back? I said, honestly, I didn't. And they're like, would you please just call them back? And it was funny because one of my other office staff said, I wonder if it's about thousand pound sisters. And I have to be honest with you. I wasn't, aware of who they were at the time mm-hmm. um, and coming to find out they had had a, a YouTube presence Sammy Amy and Tammy had and there'd been a, they had kind of developed the following so long story short I reached out to them and I talked to them and you know I I had some apprehensions um, I have seen other shows on TV that maybe I wasn't maybe a big fan of and maybe it was because of whether or how it was portrayed I've definitely 
learned a lot and realized that, man, you can spend hours with people and a lot of that ends up on the cutting room floor and you got, you got to make a, you know, you got to fit into the time slot. So you don't always get to hear things, the whole story. Um, and so I've developed a new appreciation for that, but I really just, um, I didn't like sometimes how I would see maybe how the patients were talked to or maybe talked down to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really bothered me. And so I was a little apprehensive. I was very clear, look, I'm going to be me. I don't know if that's going to make for good TV or not, but I'm going to be me. Um, I'm not going to say things to a patient I wouldn't normally say. I'm not going to give them a regimen that wouldn't be accurate with how I would treat all my other patients. The production company, um, Crazy Legs Production is a production company, and they've been great as far as like, no, we want you to be you. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, I remember meeting with my CEO and he said, look, is this something that you really want to do? Um, if it is, we'll support it. And I said, I'll be honest with you. The, the main thing I, I think I want to do this is, is two reasons. Number one, I was tired of watching people, especially in small towns. I grew up in a small town or maybe even a state like Kentucky that's maybe not one of the bigger states with bigger cities. Um, have people who needed something, especially from healthcare, and they had to be, quote, shipped off to the big city to be cared mm-hmm. for. Yeah. When I thought we give as good, if not better care than anybody. And that doesn't mean there's not great options out there. But I knew that we could take care of them as well, if not better than anybody else. And then number two, I thought, how fair is it for me to sit back and say, I don't like how this has been portrayed in the past if I wasn't going to do something about it? You know, Mm -hmm. if I wasn't going to try to be a positive influence, I kind of looked at social media that way for the longest time. I, you know, physicians were always like, don't go to Dr. Google. Don't go to Dr. Google. Uh (laughs) But I thought, you know, how can I sit here and and be critical about it? Or I can go out and try to make, put something positive out there, at Mm -hmm. least put what I think is a positive influence out there. And that's really what ended up causing me to do it. Um, I have no regrets. I think it's been, it's been great. I've enjoyed obviously meeting the people on the show. Um, I think um, you get all sorts of reactions, but way more positive than negative reactions from people who watch the show. Um, I think the probably the 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 biggest um, positive that's come from the show is people reaching out to me and thanking me for the way that I treat the people on the show, the way I treat Chris or Tammy, um, people that are battling with this. Um, and putting, I've had so many people say, I know that's a possibility for me that I know that I can go and find a surgeon who will understand what I'm dealing with and not point a finger at me because I've put myself in this position, but want to give me tools to help myself. So that in itself made it all worth the while. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I suspect there's some emotional baggage with the cast that we aren't aware of, but um, Dr. Smith, you can really tell you genuinely care for your patients. And I think you shine with all of your patients, but in one particular episode, I thought you were absolutely brilliant because you talked about the process of discomfort that goes along with breaking food addictions and being hungry. And, you know, in my career, I've certainly had individuals who live a very high carbohydrate lifestyle 
lifestyle, not only um, folks that need to lose weight, but also endurance athletes, they're eating whatever they want. Um, and then when we try and cut the carbohydrates back, there's certainly a drop in energy and a drop in performance and an overall kind of blah feeling. Um, do you have ways that you found that have helped your patients overcome that not so good feeling when they kind of drop the carbohydrate and sugar levels? Yeah, and you know, I will have to say I'm surrounded by really good dietitians too. I have three dietitians in my office that help, and I always say uh, the key to a successful program is surrounding yourself with really smart people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Amen. And I always want the patients to know that you know I might get a lot of the credit and the press, but the people that help me—I have nurse practitioners and PAs and dietitians that all have an equal role in this. Um, so. I have to say that they are a huge help in the education that they give them. But overall, <clears throat> I think it's, you, it just has to start off with small steps, mm -hmm. you know, of being able to find, you can't take everything away from somebody. Um, and you have to find ways to kind of meet them in the middle. So everybody kind of has those, those crutches that there's, or their weaknesses. I think we try really hard to set some ground rules, but then say, when you've started to make progress and you and you've you've mentally become strong enough, let's find if you're a if you're a pizza person, let's find that alternative that's a healthier option. All right. You know, yeah. and our goal isn't to put somebody on a crash diet for the rest of their life, because that's like you said, that the professional dieters, that's why they fail. It's yeah. it's not realistic to live that way. And, you know, I, I use this example all the time, but I said if I have a buddy that comes to me and says, hey, man, I'm, I'm two weeks into sobriety, and, and, and the guys are going to go to the bar to watch the game. What's your thoughts? I'm going to say, nah, I think it's a bad idea. But if he comes to me two years into sobriety, and he's been in those environments before, and now he's mentally strong enough and, and, um, and safe enough that he can go and make a good choice of what he chooses to partake in, join, enjoying time with his friends, yeah, get back to life. Get back to living life. And, and, and proving to yourself that you can do these things in a healthier fashion. So I think everybody's different. You know, everybody's situation is different, figuring out what foods they're maybe drawn to, finding that happy medium. And then lastly, you know, the, those ruling out those food addictions. I don't believe everybody has a food addiction that's overweight. I don't think it works that way. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I think the public forgets about when they see somebody, maybe like somebody on the show that they're like, man, why don't they make these changes? Is I told somebody one time, I said, you know, um, if you know somebody who's ad addicted to alcohol, the way that they get better is they abstain, period. Mm -hmm. I've never heard someone tell an alcoholic, Let's get you to where you just have a couple drinks a day. Yeah. That's yeah. never an option. Yeah. But can you imagine being addicted to something that you have to use to survive? Mm -hmm. You have to have food. <laughs> like yeah. You can't abstain. So it's, 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 it's a struggle for that gray area of trying to set those ground rules for those people. Yeah. That's a good point. Dr. Smith, you know, I, and here in Austin, I know uh, one of the programs I'm familiar with that, you know, they, they have a behavioral health specialist talk to the, to the patient before they go through the program. And I think it's just a great idea for all of us, frankly, I think we all could use occasional uh, mental health, you know, Amen. we always talk Amen. about that. So with having said that, I mean, do you, do y'all do that? And if so, how does that look? And, 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 and thought, any thoughts about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have everybody who has bariatric surgery goes to a psychological evaluation just mm-hmm. for a baseline. Everybody, yeah. it's required. Yeah. Most insurances require it. We put everybody through that. And I always tell people, look, don't be intimidated by this. This isn't to qualify you. That's not the mm-hmm. point. It's to give us good insight to help you. Because yeah. guess what? Holidays, divorces, marriages, celebrations, deaths are all still going to happen after my surgery. And how do we cope with those moving forward? So, you know, if we identify people that have maybe some issues or histories of eating disorders or maybe a food addiction, then you you kind of narrow that down and you try to guide those people to maybe somebody more specialized to that. Um, we constantly offer regular support groups to these people um, to be able to participate in mm-hmm. um, throughout that. And again, I think it goes back to my job, one of the most important jobs I think I have is to make sure our clinic and our practice creates an environment that no one's ever afraid to show up and say, I'm, I'm, I'm messing up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because yeah. if they feel like they're going to be shamed, that doesn't mean we're not honest with them, right. but we can do it in a, in a empathetic and a loving way. If they feel like they're going to be shamed when they need help the most is when they'll come get it the least. Uh, and that's not going to end up with good results. So we, we, tr- we try to normalize that and make sure that, that, hey, that's normal to go through that and feel that way. So come back and let us help you. We're not going to be mad or upset with you. And, you know, yeah. I, I cannot agree with you more in saying that we all could probably benefit, it, benefit <laughs> from it. And I really honestly mean, mean that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Me too. I think we definitely, for too long, yeah. we, we felt like we're weak. You know, right. especially men, we're yeah. so daggone stubborn as it is. And, yeah. um, but it doesn't mean we're weak. In fact, it means that we're, we're brave enough to say, yeah, I, I'm struggling a little bit. Oh, I love That's that. That's so true. I love You that. know, you uh, said something recently on social media. I, I was kind of scrolling through it invest in others and they will invest in themselves. And I, I just feel like that really kind of characterizes what I've learned about you and your passion for this. And I, I feel like I try to do that in my practice too, as, as a hospitalist, I don't know these patients as well, or as long as you do, but if you, if you kind of go that extra step as a healthcare provider to, to let them know that you care about them more than just the numbers and the disease process, I think it's a motivating factor for them that they, that may be that, that piece of the puzzle that's missing for these patients. And I just want to commend you on that. I think that's such a gift. It really is. Yeah. We need people like you. Well, I appreciate that. I, I try to do that. And I think it's important. You know, I've had comments from some people that follow the show and say, why don't you just, you know, why don't you just uh, give up on Tammy, you know, yeah. or why don't you just tell her, you know, don't come back or why, you know, why do you keep letting her come back? And I, I say, well, man, it, if this was easy, everybody would do it. You know, <laughs> there's not, it's not my timeline. It's the patient's timeline. Now, it's my job to set ground rules and say, I will not compromise what's best for you mm-hmm. um, just because I feel bad. Right. But, you know, I told her one time, and I'm not even sure if this made it in an episode or not, but I sat there when she really wasn't kind of doing the things that I'd given her to do. I said, Tammy, I'm going to tell you something. You're actually not wasting my time because I'm here every day. And I will be here every day, whether it's tomorrow you're ready or two years from now you're ready. Um, I don't want you wasting yours. Yeah. You know, your time is valuable. But I'm, I, I told her from day one, um, I'm not going anywhere. And I think not only Tammy, but a lot of patients who have battled with obesity 
have for in whatever form or fashion, it could be in medicine, it could not be in medicine. They feel like patients, they feel like people have kind of given up on them or they yeah. feel like yeah. people have kind of pushed them to the side. They've had, you know, maybe unfortunately a primary care physician who said, if you don't lose weight, you're going to die, but have never given them a tool to do it. Have yeah. never explained to them specifics on how to go about it. And have never been honest with them and telling them that the chances of success for a morbidly obese patient with diet and exercise alone, which unfortunately is not very good. Yeah. 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 You know, I find conversations about mortality rate due to behaviors and lifestyles is, as well as genetics and illness is fascinating. And but before this interview, the three of us were talking about COVID and weight. And Dr. Clitheroe, I want you to kind of weigh in on this too. Have you guys come across anything with research and data when you're looking at the, you know, obesity in terms of recouping from COVID? Well, you know, I just know in my own clinical experience, we, you know, quite a few of our critically ill patients have been um, overweight, and if not morbidly overweight, and, and it certainly has caught our attention. And, and we were discussing it, discussing it further. And I think it's just, um, it's a delicate topic, obviously, because there's a lot of other risk factors for COVID. But I, you know, Beth, you and I have talked about before that it would, anything we can do maybe to motivate our patients, not in a fear, fear, uh, you know, creating way, but just a, you know, a frank way to say, hey, this is, Another reason that maybe to motivate you to kind of start to look at some, you know, changes in your lifestyle to try and work on that weight. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. But uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there, but I would love to hear what Dr. Smith has to say about it. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked earlier and, and we definitely have seen a trend. I think it, it's nice to finally see it being talked about in the, in the media because I feel like the trend was there a long time ago and it wasn't discussed for whatever reason. Um, of what percentage of patients who are who are not doing well with COVID, mm -hmm. whether it means they get hospitalized or require extensive treatment or unfortunately don't survive, um, are are obese or morbidly obese, and it's a very high number. Mm -hmm. Depending on where you look, it could be anywhere from seventy to eighty percent. And I think it's easy to immediately say, well, you know, we know as physicians that when someone is morbidly obese, they tend to not do as well if they have a heart attack if they have pneumonia, you know, if they go into renal failure, um, because of all those other associated comorbidities that may go along with it. Mm -hmm. But I think we're learning more and more the inflammatory process of mm -hmm. this disease. Um, and it's directly correlated with the fat cells and the adipose tissue that these patients have and some of the inflammatory mediators yeah. that are involved in this disease that, you know, this is unfortunately being kind of called, oh, it's like the flu. Well, let's ignore um, survivability rates and hospitalization rates. We're, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about all right. this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like the, it, it's, a, it's a novel virus that is new that behaves completely differently. It's, it's like comparing, you know, um, it's like comparing ovarian cancer the colon cancer. They're completely mm -hmm. different entities. Mm -hmm. They affect different organ systems and their survivabilities are different too. Yeah. So this virus, for whatever reason, and, and I'm not probably smart enough to tell you all the specifics, behaves in a way that it really wreaks havoc through the inflammatory mediators. And it just so happens that patients who are overweight, they make a lot more of those. Yeah. And causes a lot of that of that in organ damage versus somebody 
Um, and it doesn't mean that somebody who's not overweight can't get really sick right. and die because you and I both have seen that happen. Yes. And we can't always explain that. But more often than not, there is a strong, strong correlation. I think when the disease first started, we fixated on the elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was accurate. But what we're realizing is as predictable, if not more, is not age. It's wait and be in mind. Wait and yeah. be in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, just another maybe um, information tidbit for patients as they contemplate their health. You know, again, not to, in a fearful way or you know, to scare people, but just to say, hey, this, you know, because COVID's not going away anytime soon. And unfortunately, we'll, we'll have to learn to live with right. it. So let's, um, let's make sure that we individually make choices that, you know, improve our health. And I think that's important. Well, again, Dr. Smith, we're very yeah, sensitive and I to think your time. It, I think it's, it's opened our eyes to it. You know, oh, yeah. Anything. I would just say in closing that you and I know that, like I said earlier, if somebody gets a heart attack and they're overweight, they don't do as well as maybe somebody who's in better shape. You know, Absolutely. From health standpoint, yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe we can learn from this that, um, you know, if we can, we can take care of the problem acutely, but what are we going to do in preparation to make us be able to withstand the future? Yeah. And that is, we probably need to invest as much, if not more time in that over the long haul. Mm-hmm. So, okay. hey, when the next COVID does come, it doesn't have the impact that this one's had. So true. I oh, agree. that's so true. Well, we're sensitive to your time uh, constraints, Doc, and we appreciate it so much that you've joined us. And, and you know, I hope that we have listeners right now that are, you know, thinking about this, have been told that it may be an option for them and that they've been reassured by your, you and your 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 calming presence and informative presence that it's the right thing for them. And so, you know, whether they want more information or maybe even to contact you, could you, could you kind of, and we're going to put all this on our landing page, but you, could you tell us where we can find you out there on the World Wide web? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go um, to the, um, on, on the, our website is Georgetown Bariatrics Advanced Surgical.com. Okay. So um, uh, the name of my practice is Georgetown Bariatrics and, and Advanced Surgical Services.com. Okay. So if you go to Georgetown Bariatrics Advanced Surgical.com, that's the website. And that can give you links even to the seminars that we talked about, the educational videos and stuff like that. Um, we also have a Facebook page. If you look under Georgetown Bariatrics and Advanced Surgical Services, that you can get some great information. And um, then I have a personal Instagram that I post a lot of content and videos to that I think you all have referenced before. Mm -hmm. And that's just Dr. Eric Smith underscore. Um, And we'd love to have people follow along as well. And, you know, I will go on to say that if your listeners give you feedback that this spurns some conversations or they want to want some more specifics. Um, I'd be happy to, to join you guys again, and maybe we could dig a little deeper on something much more focused, a little bit more narrow, if that's something that somebody uh, would Absolutely. Like. Fantastic. Absolutely. absolutely. For yes. sure. For sure. Again, we really appreciate it. And, and with that, uh, we'll, we'll take it to a commercial, and we'll be right back. Teachers shape the future. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who'll make preventing pandemics their life's work. Sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who'll help combat climate change. And generating possibilities for a student who'll be the first in their family to graduate college. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. All right, we're back, Beth. 
that show was better than I thought. And I thought it was going to be great. Oh my gosh. I know. You know, when you ask, you know, to let our listeners behind the scenes, sometimes when you ask someone to be on the show, I mean, come on, we knew that Dr. Smith was going to be amazing and he was, but oh my gosh, I just, I didn't want the conversation to end. I agree. I mean, I, a a skillful surgeon who also is empathetic and a great communicator, that is a really big triple thread. He is just a great great surgeon. And I know he's impacted a lot of lives, not only in the bariatric world, but also just a general surgery. I mean, he still is a practicing general surgeon. So um, I was very appreciative of his time because I'm sure his time is um, well-spoken for. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I want to thank, you know, Dr. Smith for being here. And I want to thank you, Dr. Clitheroe for, you know, joining me every show. I enjoy doing this with you. And, you know, I want to thank our listeners to join in us. You know, we try to do this about twice a month. We try to do a show twice a month. And but this is your first time listening or whether you're a subscriber, I want to thank our listeners too. Thank you so much, everybody. And spread the word, you know, tell, tell your buddies about us. We'd love to have more folks um, get the message. Yeah. Well, you know, we have quite the following, you know that. Well, I know you have quite the following. I think I am. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, whatever. You're so sweet. sweet. Well, you know, I think um, I'm not sure if you've mentioned it before, but I have been um, recently um, elevated to the role as president of the Travis County Medical Society here in Austin. And so I am um, on another bully pulpit, which is the president of our society trying to get um, physicians to gather together to share fellowship and learn from each other. And, um, and, you know, in this day and age, uh, maybe um, commiserate with each other about some of the struggles we go through. So um, I am looking forward to this year, both for that, but especially for working with you on this awesome podcast. Well, thank you. I feel the same way. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you soon. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details